Welcome to episode 74 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Justin Schneider. He's a patron of the podcast. He works in communications for the education system in BC. He's joining me from Kelowna, BC. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse. Really excited to be here. Justin pitched his way onto the show because he wanted to talk about the great character actor Harry Dean Stanton. He was in over 200 films and television shows, and we're going to talk about the man in general, but in particular, we're focusing on the only two films where he played the leading role, 1984's Paris, Texas, directed by Vim Vendors, and 2017's Lucky, directed by John Carroll Lynch. Justin, my first question to you. I want to hear about your relationship with Harry Dean Stanton. I know he's a very important uh, film actor, and he's a beloved figure in movies. Roger Ebert famously said, any movie that has Harry Dean Stanton in it can't be that bad. Yeah, he brings this um, human quality to everything. He, To me, um, he's someone who you watch, you're watching a movie, and all of a sudden, you know, he appears, and he brings it all home, whether it's a really good film, something that's, you know, mainstream and huge. Um, probably the first thing I saw him in was, uh, you know, as a teenager seeing Cool Hand Luke. Um, but then, you know, you, you think about things. I was just, I was just showing, um, my son, uh, Alien a few months ago for the first time and, and he pops up in there and as, you know, as the, the working class, uh, you know, Brett, the mine, you know, the space miner. And, and again, he brings the, the humanity to this film that's, that's otherwise, you know, brilliant has all the trappings of a, of a great movie, all the amazing lighting and mood. And then to me, he completes that, right? Um, he, he, he brings the, the, the real human aspect and reminds us that these are, these are people doing a job in space and, and dealing with something that's very, very frightening. Harry Dean Stanton, when I think about him, I realize that he was in several of my favorite films, sometimes in small parts, sometimes in significant roles. Let me just list a few off. These are some movies that I love. Two Lane Blacktop, The Godfather Part Two, Straight Time, Alien, John Huston's Wise Blood, Escape from New York, Repo Man, Paris, Texas, The Straight Story. I mean, this these are just some great, great films. He had memorable moments in Cool Hand Luke, in Cockfighter, in Bertrand Tavernier's Death Watch, in Red Dawn, in Pretty in Pink, in Wild at Heart, in The Green Mile, The Pledge, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with Sam Peckinpah. He was on the HBO series Big Love as the prophet of the polygamous sect on that show. You've seen him. He's a total that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, exactly a that guy. I mean, he's the one... You know, when I first uh, when I first decided to put on Lucky, I was like, oh, I think I'll watch it because I like that guy. Um, and a lot of people, yeah, he, yeah, I think there's been a, a documentary made about it, about, you know, the, the people that you're not really sure their name, but as soon as they come on screen, whether you're a, a real cinephile or not, you, you just watch this, you see him and you go, oh, it's that guy. I love that guy. Right. And yeah, like I said, again, you brought up, um, you know, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Um those are things that you know they're they're among my favorite movies and and they were for different reasons at the you know um at the time that I watched them it wasn't just because of Harry Dean Stanton but if you're following around Harry Dean Stanton you're going to come across all these treasures um and 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 I know he talks about that that he's you know was grateful in his career to have 
worked with so many amazing directors and and but you know they appreciated him um he was you know you sometimes you hear about you know the rapper's rapper or the comedian's comedian and and i think i think he was um sort of that you know director's actor like people loved him as much as audiences did and they were they wanted to have him in their movie just because of who he was in um kind of diving down the rabbit hole after after really falling in love with the movie lucky and then kind of going back and then even just in preparation for this show you know it led me to things like cisco pike and and wise blood where again um whether it's it's a major role it's i guess they'd be called large roles or (laughs) medium roles i'm not sure but they're but he's a significant part right he's not the star of the movie um He's definitely, you know, sometimes he's almost, he's an antagonist or, a, or definitely a driving force in the movie his character is, but he's, again, kind of one of the best parts of the movie, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, he brings the heart to it, like something like Cisco Pike, right? Which is, has got, you know, these, this kind of breakout performance from Chris Christopherson, which Harry Dean Stanton actually kind of, he's like, you know, chuckles to himself, oh, I made Chris Christopherson a star with this, uh, but you know, a movie star with that. Um, and, and you've got this amazing performance from Gene Hackman too. Yes. You know, uh, where, where he's just like a little bit, not what you're used to seeing him, just this incredible frantic, uh, cop, a dirty cop. And, um, then you've got Harry Dean Stanton who brings once again, like the, you know, the pathos to this, to this little movie and, and, and brings the humanity and the, you know, the kind of troubled character that you, you love and feel sorry for and, and everything all at the same time. Harry Dean Stanton was born in 1926 in East Irvine, Kentucky. He was the son of a Baptist tobacco farmer and his mother was a hairdresser. He said that he had a very strict and unhappy childhood. He also felt responsible. Like his parents weren't very happy and he was the first born son. And he sort of felt that uh, his mom sort of resented him. Uh, for you know, forcing her to be in this loveless marriage with uh, with her husband. Before his acting career, though, he uh, he fought in World War II. Stanton served in the U.S. Navy. He had a stint as a cook aboard the USS LST 970, which was a tank landing ship, and he uh, saw some action during the Battle of Okinawa. This will come up uh, later when we talk about the film Lucky, which has a lot of autobiographical details about Stanton's life. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's things that they work into the movie um, because it's because it is just such a, a sort of a tribute to his entire life, and it's a that's something that you can tell he was clearly, um, I guess you know, obviously sort of sort of proud of, but just sort of colors his his life. Um, and and he brings it up in in a lot of interviews where he talks about you know being on a landing ship tank. He returned to college in Lexington after the war, and he caught the acting bug. He said that it could have gone either way in his life between singing and acting. Uh, in 1949, he moved to California to study acting at the Pasadena Playhouse. His classmates included Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall, and he did a very very long stint uh, as a character actor. Nearly 20 years, many, many supporting roles on television, especially in Westerns. He was on eight separate episodes of Gunsmoke. I don't know if he played the same character every time. That show ran for a long, long time, but he kept on coming back. He is like the perfect casting for a Western, actually. 
Yeah, absolutely. He's the uh, I think he's perfect as sort of the uh, usually the sidekick in the gang or or just you know a member of the posse or whatever, right? He's um, it's it's amazing though that he could stand out uh, wherever he is um, because of that because he has that sort of everyman quality, and mm-hmm. and I think people could just you know you could just pop him into a like I said like the the posse or whatever, and yet. And like you think about uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and yet he he stands out, and and that's interesting. Um, you bring that up too about his you know his singing, and that it could have gone either way because he tends to put that in there. It's in there in Cool Hand Luke, and and in there in um, so many so many roles that he does. Um, but I was like I always think I when I see him singing, whether it's in an interview or whatever, I think that is some of his best acting. He's he brings this, you know, power and emotion, and you can see him. It's it's as though he's experiencing all the thoughts and the feelings of the lyrics that he's that he's putting out, and yet it's not in this hammy, cheesy way. He somehow, you know, keeps it on track and just sort of makes you feel what he's what he's intending to do. Mm-hmm. He was also longtime friends with Jack Nicholson, which couldn't have hurt uh, as a young sort of uh, well, a uh, sort of a youngish man in the sixties. Hung around with Jack a lot. He was even his best man when Jack got married to the actress Sandra Knight, which was a short-lived marriage. Uh, and also when Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda and all those guys were discovering drugs and uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, Harry Dean Stanton was along for the ride. I've heard tell that Harry Dean Stanton and Jack Nicholson used to host orgies at each other's houses in the 60s. They were sex and drug benders. The funny detail that I read from the ones, the parties that would happen at Jack's house is that uh, people would go over to the fridge and there was almost nothing to eat. It was just milk because Jack drank a lot of milk and uh, drugs, which were kept in the fridge. Well, now we know where that detail in Lucky comes from. Oh, uh, yes. We'll, 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 we'll mention that. We'll have to talk about that. But it's, yeah, um, you can just picture it, right? It's just sort of... Uh, this skinny, he's sort of this diminutive man, right? And and just surviving on on very little. That that makes me think of his character in Cisco Pike too. Yes, um, you know, but they're very much part of that culture. But um, I think of you know someone uh, you know once said that you know Jack Nicholson was sort of the quintessential movie star. Um, that he was the only real movie star, um, and and that's I think you know Harry Dean Stanton. It's funny because you know him being the best man. It's it's kind of like his his career where it's kind of an always the bridesmaid type thing right um you know he's he's well respected and loved and but but never quite that that leading man that some of his so many of his friends and contemporaries were and and you see it in in interviews and i know it's been it was surmised by the um uh, the the woman who had the personal relationship with him and then made the documentary about him sophie huber he always says oh i wasn't the leading man you know, uh, he always says like, oh, no, it just a lot of it. There's a lot of calls I never took and a lot of opportunities because it would have been too much work. But you also get the sense that there may be a, a tiny bit of sour grapes there in a way. But one of my very favorite uh, Harry Dean Stanton parts was in Repo Man. Uh, that's one of the biggest roles he had gotten at that point where he played um, Emilio Estevez's uh, the guy who shows him the ropes about being a Repo Man. Uh, he has some very, very funny parts especially uh the famous line where he says ordinary fucking people i hate him while he's like yeah. snorting coke looking at these yeah. <laughs> guys in the street yeah. yeah that that is the scene that 
that stands out is, is him in that car. I never broke into a car, I never hotwired a car, kid. Or I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. Me too. What do you know, kid? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Then we follow Let's go get a drink. You know, that, that whole role, that kind of is what I, I kind of see him as, right, in my mind. Um, it, it's part of, part of the, whole, the whole persona and mythos of, of Harry Dean Stanton because he is like that guy, you know, when I was younger working, working jobs, um, you know, just sort of, um, what do you call it? I don't know, entry-level jobs or things like that, you know, working in, in things like night security and stuff as a, as a young man. I remember, you know, meeting all these characters that were like that, whether they were cab drivers or night watchmen. Um, who were so self-assured and so, uh, you know, proud of whatever it was they were doing, and they had all these these stories. And you sometimes get that when he's being interviewed, when Harry Dean Stanton's being interviewed, because you kind of get this sort of self-assured. Well, I'm going to tell you, and don't you get it? Like, and and that there was parts of that character that that were <laughs> that were very much like that. Like, hold on, young man, I'm going to tell you all about the world, and here's how it is. And you know, some of it's a little bit sort of pop philosophy some of it's a little bit um urban myth or urban legend but it, it's kind of all rolled into this uh you know delightful kind of old timery uh you know bullshit for lack of a better word that yeah. that um that is so char- but it's so charming and 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 true to life yeah completely three-dimensional completely believable you i mean there are guys like harry dean stanton out there in uh, repo man i always describe guys like that as being what i would call skinny badasses like they look like they weighed 100 pounds but they could probably kick your ass (laughs) if they had to absolutely he wasn't afraid (laughs) he wasn't afraid of anybody right um yeah just like in real life like he feared he feared no drug he was totally confident and uh, with with women, um, and then you see him in a in a role like that, where you know it's such a perfect example of him just walking in, and you just believe him. Uh, you just believe that he's been sitting there for for twenty years, you know, repossessing cars and 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 bringing on new people and teaching them the way of the world. And you know what he, his interaction with Emilio Estevez is something that he's probably done. You feel like he's done multiple times, um, and that's that's what I think. You know, people like David Lynch are talking about when they talk about how natural he is. Uh, you know, when he pops up in, in David Lynch, when he returns in uh, Twin Peaks, um, you just believe he's been sitting in that trailer park smoking cigarettes and watching the world go on, you know, seeing these strange events go on around him. He is that person, you know, he just and he's he's always he's Harry Dean Stanton, but um, he takes on whatever character, whatever lines he's given in such a natural way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, Harry Dean Stanton wasn't on the original Twin Peaks TV series, but he was in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. And mm-hmm. then Lynch brought that character back for season three. And he's one of the highlights of the series, actually. Absolutely. 
I love and I, and I love how it's like he's he's being chauffeured around in that van with the cigarettes and, and the lamp in the van, like yeah. <laughs> just recreate his little living room for him. Yeah, I, oh, I, I remember just feeling such such joy when that when that character came on. Yeah, Vim Wenders, the great German filmmaker who had a fixation on America, uh, got the opportunity to make a film in the United States, a feature film, and the reason why Harry Dean Stanton wound up in the movie was that. Sam Shepard, who had written a, 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 I guess either a book or a play called Motel Chronicles, they were talking about adapting it as a film. And and Sam Shepard met up with Harry Dean Stanton in a bar, and uh, they were talking. And Harry Dean Stanton was talking about the kinds of roles he would like to play, and mm-hmm. it was such a compelling <laughs> conversation for Shepard that Shepard decided that we've got to make a movie and we've got to make. Harry Dean Stanton be the lead. Yeah, and, and Harry Dean Stanton was always says, "I wasn't trying to get him to do this, write a role for me." You know, he said, "I was just, I was just complaining to him. He was sort of sick of always, always playing the kind of the, the crook and the loser and the loner and whatever. I want to be something with some sensitivity." And uh, he gets that in spades from the brilliantly written part. It was a major art house hit in the eighties, and it catapulted Harry Dean Stanton into a new uh, realm as an actor. It was his first leading role, and you cannot take your eyes off him in this whole film. I knew these people. They were in love with each other. She's leaving the bank. He was kind of raggedy and wild. She was very beautiful, you know? And he... Loved her more than he ever felt possible. The winner of the Golden Palm at the Cannes Film Festival and one of the most acclaimed films of the decade. Harry Dean Stanton, Nastasia Kinski, Dean Stockwell, Aurore Clément, and introducing Hunter Carson. Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas begins with uh, a shot of the desert. It's the landscape between Mexico and Texas. It looks a lot like a John Ford uh, Western meets an alien landing on the planet Earth. Like There's something very otherworldly about the way the movie starts. We see a little man walking in this vast landscape, and we get a better look at him, and we see a bearded man wearing a red baseball cap, which, of course, means something different in... The modern age to shattered American men. <laughs> yeah. um, but he's a lost soul. And uh, he actually doesn't even say a, a word for the first 20 or so minutes of the movie. He emerges uh, from the desert and goes to this uh, little, uh, a little country store and uh, passes out on the floor and gets treated by a local doctor, improbably played by a middle-aged German man, who uh, they are able to piece together that uh, this guy has a relative, played by Dean Stockwell, his brother, who is contacted, uh, I think he lives in California, and he uh, travels all the way to Texas to go get his brother back, but he still won't say anything. It's almost as if he's in a disassociative fugue state or something. You, you really don't know whether or not he's the, been the victim of trauma or what. So Harry Dean Stanton, when he when he's in interviews describing that that performance, um, that he was that he 
was so excited to do and it was was you know written expressly for him um but how do you play this person who's who who's how do you understand that that state that sort of sort of walking comatose <laughs> state um that you're almost catatonic or whatever you want to describe it as but he's still he's walking around he's interacting with the world around him um i love that you describe it as a space alien <laughs> because that's sort of like the way even when he does start to talk that's sort of how he's interacting with the world sort of like oh what is this thing a car how do i get into it um but he said that on the set there there was a ucla film student i believe that was working with them and she told him that she had experienced this this state and she said you know um i was scared to say a word because i thought i might crack up and and he he, you can tell he takes that uh, and just does it to perfection where he just, he looks so um, worried, you know, not, not as though he's dealing with all these jumbled thoughts necessarily, which he, he clearly is too, but he, but it's, it's as though he's, he's kind of on his face. He's almost just quivering, like as though if he says anything, it's going to be the wrong thing. And then he's going to just, you know, <laughs> tear his clothes off and run screaming away or something like he's going to have this complete breakdown even though he's already he's already had a breakdown clearly you can see he's he's a very traumatized person and because he won't say anything we have no idea what it is the only uh thing that he says in the first little while we're not even privy to because uh the dean stockwell character tries to get him into an airplane because that's a lot faster to get home than uh driving so uh, they try to get on a plane, but they are actually like kicked off the airplane <laughs> because Harry Dean Stanton has a meltdown on the plane that's so bad that they have to actually like get them off the plane. Yeah, he has um, some sort of a panic attack, and only in the eighties could you stop. I believe yeah. could you stop the airplane on the tarmac and just okay, we'll just we'll just put the stairs down for you and let you out onto the tarmac. Right, that's, yeah. that's not going to happen in this day and age. His outburst would be streamed immediately to the internet. Absolutely, this. Strange man was duct taped to the seat by flight attendants um, for an outburst. He would he wouldn't wear a mask, no. But he it it's um it, it is almost this like slightly Rain Man dynamic, right? Where it's like hold on, hold on, I'm just going to deal with my brother. And it's neat because um you know Dean Stockwell plays this almost like flawless brother figure throughout the movie. Uh, he's this you know that was something my wife and I were remarking on afterwards, where we're like, oh, he was just so great. Like what a great brother and that he was so understanding of it but you also see him reacting a bit like the audience is which is sort of like oh come on just just speak like you're at, he even says at one point you're acting like a spoiled kid like you know as if it's some sort of petulance that's keeping him from from speaking when mm-hmm. it's really um when it's really just a matter of uh he's been four years like this it's been four years since he sort of wandered out of society and People didn't know his the people in his life, his brother and sister in law. They didn't know if he was dead. They didn't know where he was, um, and 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 he they've they're just left with his son. They 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 said his son just showed up, and and then there's that brilliant scene where where Dean Stockwell's explaining that to him in a diner, and he's slowly starting to you see him starting to thaw out and react to the words that are being spoken to him to the story that his brother's telling him where he's saying you know we didn't know what to do your son just showed up on our doorstep and all he could tell us was that the car had brought him there and you see his face start to crack and the tears start to drip down his face and 
And that's where you see, like I said, he's really starting to kind of, the character's kind of starting to thaw out and, and, and the, the words that are being said have a visible impact on him. And it's just, uh, to me, that is, is so much of what Harry Dean Stanton's power as an actor is, is to just, you know, wordlessly portray that kind of emotion and react to it. You could tell he's, he's really imagining himself in that, in that role. I'm mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, it's really, really powerful acting. Well, I read an interview with Harry Dean Stanton where he said that um, one of the most important components of acting is what you're doing while the other person is talking. That, uh, you know, that acting is, is not just saying your dialogue. It's what is going on all over your face when the other person is speaking. Uh, and so, so much of the power of this movie rides on the expressions on Harry Dean Stanton's face. Not so much what he's saying. He gets more and more talky as the movie goes. But, you know, at first, he is filmed almost as if uh, he's part of the landscape, like that his face is uh, is as much of the landscape of the movie as Texas is. I just want to say that this film was shot by the great German cinematographer, Robbie Muller, who had a one, two, three punch in America when he started making films in the US. In In a straight run, he shot Repo Man, Paris, Texas, and To Live and Die in L.A., which are three of the best-looking American movies of that decade. Yeah, absolutely incredible-looking movie, too, Paris, Texas, because of that. Um, you know, he knows when to... Uh, he shows you his whole face, and then there's, you know, in the later mov- in the later parts of the movie, there's these um, amazing, you know, more shadows and portraits and, and you know, kind of... Sh- you know, just showing you just what's what's needed. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, you get not only that, but this amazing photography of the landscape and the and the cities around. You know, like I can't um, that that combination of, of of director and cinematographer, where you say like, here's the details. I think the you know the director's clearly showing him the details that need to be in there. Um, I think one of them is that that I found really interesting was that his brother is his job is is making billboards yes and there's kind of that funny part where again like a space alien he's kind of like oh so you're the one who makes all those and he's like well i'm not the only person who makes billboards you know <laughs> but but i think that the billboard some of the billboards you see are very intentional uh that that the messages on them are are part of it but you but the but the cinematography it's so so beautiful how it takes you from from sort of the, the edges of civilization right into the heart of the the city right it's it's giving you this sort of obvious parallel of the of the of the character you know being kind of brought out of out of the wilderness and into the into civilization slowly as he so as he sort of slowly and i keep saying thaws out but you know as he slowly sort of comes to and begins to interact with the world around him um you also you know you've you've got that 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 beautiful cinematography that does such justice to the landscapes and like i said it's i think it's kind of that outside eye right it's the it's that european director who's fascinated with america looking at it from that perspective and as a road movie i love that it's not just you know here they go and oh they meet the wild hitchhiker and then they meet the sassy waitress or any of that it's Mm -hmm. it's all it's all about the character and the road movie is in the journey through the landscape the second section of the movie is him sort of starting to sort of fix the uh, 
the the things that are broken in his life, having to become reacquainted with his son who doesn't remember him because mm-hmm. uh, whatever happened to Harry Dean Stanton happened while his boy was much too young to remember. At one like point, Harry Dean, and, yeah. well, at one point, Harry Dean Stanton says, is four years a long time to be yeah. gone? And his brother says, for a child, it is. That's half his life. Yeah, exactly. It is a long time for the for the child. And and it's funny because like we talk about the time in this movie and the time flow, and it's even though it's like a two and a half hour movie, um, it doesn't feel that way. And and you're you know the the story moves along even though it's this even though it's poignant and and somewhat slow moving, and and sort of gentle with its story in that sense of of time. It's still like for me that that whole getting reacquainted with his son. I'm almost like, geez, wouldn't this have taken longer? Like, it, it, like wouldn't it have taken longer for him to to build a relationship with his son? But again, you know, time as viewed by a child is so different from from time as viewed by an adult. Right. And so even though it just seems like a space a few days where he gets his son to completely trust him again, um, that's a long time for a kid who's who's seems to be the character seems to be somewhat unaffected and somewhat just sort of a normal kid. He's into Star Wars, he's playing his games, he's just sort of rolling along through life. But um, you know, this trauma has happened to him too. Whatever's whatever split this family apart has happened to the child too, whether he was old enough to remember it or not. I think the like the script and everything is so sensitive to that. The way this movie is made, it's um, it is such a like a it has such a tender touch. It has so much gives so much space to all of its all of its characters, even the the aunt slash you know sort of surrogate mother. Everybody gets their space in this movie, and and you see the the sort of the, the healing going on. Travis's absence uh, from this child's life. The kid was lucky enough that he had an uncle and an aunt that would uh, raise him, and they thought they were raising him from now on. They just assumed that Travis was dead, and that uh, that uh, the kid's mom had vanished. I mean, basically, the parents abdicated their responsibilities to this child, and and these people came in to fill in the gap. And then all of a sudden, Travis is back, and you know, as a father of a young son, uh, that section of the movie was very uh moving to me the idea of uh, a child who has no idea who this guy is and uh you know whatever the child went through when the family was ruptured fortunately the child has very dim memories of it but i thought that one of the most beautiful sections in the movie that i that i wanted to talk with you about is this sequence where the where the family unit that doesn't seem to be repairable is starting to get fixed again just by watching home movies. It seemed very therapeutic mm. for um, for these characters, but also therapeutic for like a filmmaker's understanding of the power of cinema to like heal wounds and to uh, reconnect people who have been yeah. shattered. Yes, um, you know they're they're like this little tiny movie theater audience. They're all sitting there, kind of basking in the flickering light of the Super Eight projector together, and and it's and you and while you're seeing all these images that are kind of kind of filling the viewer in as well, um, you see it healing them. You see it. You see each of them kind of sharing this bond, you know. Um, and and just before they they sit down to watch it, you know, it's kind of again. He's kind of like, you know, Harry, you know, like he's telling, he's telling him, you know, Travis, it's super eight movies, you know, home videos. And he's like, oh, okay. Like again, like almost like this, 
this alien going, oh, oh well, let's see what these are like. Um, and the kid's going, oh, I've seen these before. But now the kid's finding a new connection to who his parents are. Um, the, the aunt and uncle, uh, they're, they're remembering, you know, who they all were as a, as a group, as a family of, you know, all kind of centered around this, this little child. And plus you're seeing, you're, you know, you're seeing Harry Dean's reaction where he's like, he's seeing these images of his son as a young child, which, you know, many of his parents can relate to where you're like, oh yes, those days that we, that we can't get back, but we've still got the child here. And so you see him looking from the screen to the child, you see the aunt, you know, kind of smiling, uh, as she sees people dancing around and then you see the child. And, and, and while he's watching the film, you see these reactions where he looks over to his son and, and smiles and is like, yep, that was you, boy. And then back to the screen and seeing, you know, uh, visions of, of, of his love embracing him and his, and his head just goes into his hands. He can't look. He, can't, he, can't, he still can't even really bring himself to look at, at Jane. It's a magical s- sequence because when the projector finally runs out of film and the lights come back on, you realize that this isn't a movie theater. Even though it mm-hmm. feels like the cinema of the mind, it's their living room. And uh, I, I just love the way that that sequence feels, uh, the transformation that, uh, that cinema has uh, to, you know, to take you away. And, and in this yeah. situation, to bring you back. When the boy says goodnight, he says goodnight, Dad, to Walt, who is the brother of Travis. And he says, good night, mom. And then he goes up to Travis and says, good night, dad. It's very, very yeah. sweet. It's like, uh, it's like, and from that moment on, the boy starts to accept uh, that this is his father. And in some strange way, he has two fathers now, which he even says, I'm just lucky, I guess, that I have two dads. Yeah. And and I love how you put it as the healing power of cinema, because that's, that's kind of what it is. It's kind of this document right whether it's whether it is an actual documentary whether it's fiction whether it's a home movie it's this kind of document and reminder of who we are as 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 people and sometimes you know circumstances get in the way of that mm-hmm. and obviously they can be they can be you know these big family rending circumstances but you know all it takes is an old photograph or an old movie sometimes and just reminds you you know who you are, who your relationship to others is. And yeah, it's, it does make this really tender moment in the movie that, that you just love. You kind of chuckle. You're like, Oh wow. He's just like that. This, you know, in the eyes of a child, it's just, Oh, I've seen this proof. Yes. That is who you were to me. Okay. I'll accept, I'll accept that. And, and he goes on to just, then he's going to accept him walking him home from school. And then he's going to accept him saying, Hey, hop in the ranchero. We're going to go find your mom. (laughs) When are we leaving today? Oh, okay, <laughs> and and it's and it's very funny, and I love the little I love the little touch that they were eating the Vashkiri cheese, right? And that his yes. this whole this whole thing around this metaphor of Paris, Texas, being this place where Travis has land that he bought because he's going to go through some kind of self realization about where he began, and he's going to do it through this vacant lot in Paris, Texas that they never get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was an interesting touch that you know the brother's wife has this thick French accent and the child has obviously a little French culture in his life. And he's going to, they're sitting there just nibbling on this Vashki cheese from the boy's lunchbox under an overpass. And, 
And again, like just the locations and the cinematography, I love those overpasses. Like I remember driving through those, you know, going to Disneyland as a child, those, those LA overpasses. Mm-hmm. And you're just, you're looking out of a, out of a station wagon window as a kid. And you're looking up at these things going, how does anybody figure out where to go on these things? Right. And, yeah. and so they're sitting under this convoluted network of, of overpasses. And it's sort of like, where do we go from here? Well, I'll tell you, we're going to hop in the car and we're going to hit the highway and we're going to go find your mom. And it's, and it's, you know, of course, this is the kind of thing where I'm sitting with my wife and she's automatically having a panic attack through these scenes where, where it's <laughs> like, oh my God, you can just imagine what the aunt who's raised him is like going through when she gets the phone call from the truck stop. That's like, hey, yeah, yeah, we're on the road now. We just decided to leave after school today. And she's like, oh my God, get back here right now. And they just hang up on her and keep going. And you're like, yeah, only in only in 1984 would you would you be doing this, right? Yeah. It's funny because, like, you know, I, I, I think of other ways that I identify with this Travis character. And I think about how, you know, like, oh, if I was going to just, you know, drop out of society or if I had didn't have a family, where would I find myself? Mm-hmm. You know, and there is a certain romance to these, um, like the little kind of roadside honky-tonk that he wanders out of the desert into at the very beginning of the film. Um, and, I, and that's just a, a detail there that I loved where he's, you come in and he sees dying of thirst. He opens his fridge full of all these different cold beers. And he's like, Nope, shuts the door on that. Like, you know, beer is not what I need here. Um, he goes for a handful of ice and then passes out, but it is, it's, it's that to me in my mind is Americana. And I think, you know, as a sort of, as a, as a Canadian looking in, and I think that's, that's why, you know, this European looking into that, the Vim Vendors sees the beauty in that, in that little, the simplicity and the almost the, it, it brings you back to the old American West that we see in movies and Westerns, right? These little one horse towns, these little tiny grocery stores, these little tiny like hallways of a bar, you know, um, these are, these are the things that make it America. Well, and I mean, this is the outsider's view. This is the sort of thing mm-hmm. that maybe a guy in Germany <laughs> would notice uh, more yeah. directly because their relationship with the United States is from all the movies and TV they've watched. Exactly. As is, as is, I think partially is mine, right? Yeah. So he's seeing it from an outsider's point of view. Interestingly, mm-hmm. the great filmmaker Claire Denis was the assistant director on this movie. And she was apparently the, the, the glue that held this movie together. A vendor said that he couldn't have made this movie without her. They had money troubles while they were making the movie. This is incredible. The film was shot with a mostly European crew, and they were all working on tourist visas. So they didn't actually uh, belong there. They could have been kicked out of the country. When the Teamsters found out that this film was in production... They forced them to hire a dozen drivers on the film. And if they didn't, then they would blow the whistle on them and they'd all get thrown out of the country. So suddenly they had a lot less money to make this movie. And Claire Denis uh, revised the shooting schedule so that it was much shorter and a smaller crew. By the time that they were finished the movie, it was basically Vendors, Mueller, and Claire Denis (laughs) uh, (laughs) finishing this movie. and they were kind of making it up as they went along in a little bit yes. as well. It wasn't it wasn't something that was entirely storyboarded out, which is hard to believe when you look at these at the at the sort of you know the final act of the movie, which uses these brilliant devices. Um, but they they did you know just decide on that as you know part way through. They're like, how are we going to tell this? How are we going to have him interact? And they devised this whole kind of uh, modified peep show booth. Yes. 
Yeah, let's talk about the third act of this movie. So they 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 wind up in Houston, where they uh, where they finally figure out where uh, Jane, played by Nastasia Kinski, as a young Texan, she does a pretty good job. I was wondering whether they dubbed her or not because she doesn't sound at all German. No, and there's a few. I mean, there are some times you're like, wow, that they just laid that on a little thick. You heard in that word, and like, I haven't got the time and. It's, but it's good. It's it's believable for me, anyways, as an outsider. I don't know about somebody who lives in South Texas, you know, necessarily um, believing it. But um, but it, again, it really doesn't matter because she she really you can tell how much time and care she took with her character too in this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I read that she wrote a journal, uh, like a, a sort of a pretend diary of what her character might have gone through before, um, and yeah, although. I don't know how how authentic her accent really is. It comes across it's to me as as totally believable, but her performance, um, I think, is stands up to the incredible pathos of Harry Dean's performance in this scene in these scenes, um, just incredibly well. I mean, it really makes it makes the whole movie, and it's this whole incredible act of reconciliation. Travis has uh, figured out that. Uh... Jane sends them money once a month, even though she has no uh, relationship to her boy Hunter anymore. They track down where uh, Jane works and Travis leaves the kid in the car and goes into where she works, which turns out to be a peep show and a very strange little peep show, very arty little universe where the peep shows are like uh, themed peep shows, like where you, you, you go into this little booth and uh, you can talk to a specific kind of woman in a specific kind of environment. It's this tiny little, oh, this is this is cheap motel room. This is poolside. This is vacation spot. Like, yeah, um, a tiny little, you know, six by six room made, decorated to look like some sort of uh, exotic locale or whatever. And then you and then you talk to a costumed woman. And but it's interesting because they're, you know, right away, like the women like they're prepared to just sort of listen to them if that's what they, that's what they need. Yeah. And, and, and so you don't see, it doesn't focus on the nudity or the sex. It right away brings you into this world where it sets up the, the talking and listening that's going to be going on. The, these, these sort of potentially one-sided conversations that'll happen in these booths, uh, between our, between our main characters. But it's, um, it, it, it hammers home, like you said, like, there's a lot of lonely shattered people out there. Yeah. Um, a lot of lonely men that are just there to, to talk about it. It makes me think of the old David Allen Coe country song about angels in red, that they're just there to, you know, where he, he sort of writes this tribute song to, uh, to sex workers where it's like, it's, it's not always about this, the, the sex, right. That they're just these, these beautiful uh, benevolent souls who are there to share the troubles and worries and the loads on the mind of men. Right. Mm-hmm. And their their conversations are held through a one-way mirror. So the men can look in mm. on these women in their tableaus, but the women uh can't see who they're talking to. So it's very they're disconnected. Spared the sight. <laughs> they're spared they're the spared. sight, exactly. And yeah. uh that's a very striking moment in the movie where um where we get glimpses of what it's like t- in the woman's space. Where mm-hmm. we can see uh, the the artifice of of the rooms that these women are in, where all the decorations and everything are on one side of the yeah. of what the men see, but w- the view that the women have 
of whoever they're talking to is this bare wall with insulation and like a, you know. Yeah, yeah. they just see themselves. They see themselves reflected in this crappy mirror. And then yeah. they around it is like bare fiberglass insulation. It hasn't even been wallboarded over. Um, it's very it's, bleak. It's striking. Yeah. And it, it remains with, it remains there for the next, for the, you know, you keep seeing that as a sort of a frame around the scene for when you see from her point of view. So they have two conversations. The first one is Travis basically establishing the situation that Jane is in. The second time he goes to see her is where he finally says, what is the, what is going on here? Like he, he tells her a story about um, uh, a couple that he knew. And as the story continues, we realize that uh, he's, he's telling her uh, the story of their horrible experience that they had. What happened to him? What happened to her and their son and why he disappeared? It's a, yeah. it's an increasingly powerful scene. And yes. I remember being confused when I first saw the movie, when they were talking, it was like, if she was married to him, how could she possibly not recognize his voice? But in their second conversation, she admits that uh, in this you know world that she's in now, where she also ran away mm. from her own life, that she says that all the men that she uh, hears yeah. their voices, that they all sound like him. So she, exactly. it's almost like yeah. she, she forgot what he, his voice, yeah. but she forgot what he sounds like be, in a way. Like he can't, she she can no longer distinguish the genuine article from everybody else. That all the other disembodied male voices that she hears in her job. Exactly. Yeah. You're you're you you're kind of wondering: is it just this tiny little speaker, or is it just this this gap, right? This this separation between um the the two parties, but also the gap between between the lives that they've lived, right? That there was, there was the lifetime before and there's the lifetime now. And, and, and this whole, this whole device that they've come up with really, really highlights those, those major rifts between people. Um, that's clearly occurred. And yes, it's such a poignant monologue, right? And, and you see how, um, just as before, when he was worried to talk for fear that he might crack up, he's now, uh, when he's getting set, he knows he has to get through this. This is the big act of reconciliation in a way um, that he's going to be healing the family as much as he can. Um, he knows he can't fully heal the family, but he has to turn away from her in order to get through it. And, mm. at, and so he, he starts and, and she's just willing to listen just as she was in their first conversation where she's like, you know, it's sort of that that's okay, baby. Like, Hey, you know, that's your thing. Like, if if you just want to talk, I'll just listen. I'm I'm happy to do that. Um, and then you see her just very slowly warming up and not even quite recognizing it as her story for quite some time, which is also kind of kind of strange in a way. But she's but she's empathizing and she's she's building a, a some kind of a rapport with him. But but you know she's engaging with it. She's she's deeply invested in this in this story that he's telling her. Well, you realize that like, you know, she's, she's as damaged as he is, except like he Mm -hmm. actually set fire to his entire life. She ran away from her life. Literally. Yeah. He literally set fire to their trailer home. And he, he just, he, at one point uh, very starkly says that he just ran and ran and ran until there was nothing left. Yes. He just, he just did the forest gump, run away, just keep running, run across the landscape. Um, until you've not only run out of your life, but he runs right out of society, right? Like 
get as far away from everything because um, because he doesn't he doesn't know clearly he does he doesn't know how to fix things he doesn't know how to fix himself mm-hmm. um, he's at a loss for it and even then you know like you know nowadays I think we're so equipped uh, to deal with you know <laughs> people now <laughs> might we're so much more equipped and versed in the whole mental health language and things like that mm-hmm. um, but you know he's describing you know postpartum depression. He's describing um, alcoholism and rage issues, mm-hmm. and and things that um, and domestic violence, it, domestic violence. Yeah, absolutely. Like that that was the the fine line that this movie walked that I thought was very interesting to revisit in 2022. Is like you know he he beat her, like he he abused his wife and child. He ran away from his life. He's come yep. back. But he also is not equipped to resume life. Like he can't, they cannot be a family because what was destroyed can never be put back together. He wants the one thing that he wished didn't happen when he ran away from his life to be restored, which is the bond between the mother and the child. Mm -hmm. And, And he basically creates the circumstance for them to be back together again, because they're really the only functioning <laughs> people left. Like he, he's not there to make uh, everything be okay again. But, you know, I, I would think that maybe modern audiences might look at um, the Travis character and think that, you know, he is a terrible person. Like now that we know what he did, fuck this guy. I, I certainly see like, you know, like in my first time watching it, um, it definitely, I, you're like, oh man, like this is, this is awful. Kind of what he's admitting to, what he's finally revealing is, it, it is, it's terrible. But I don't know if the actions make you can make you entirely sympathetic with the character, but you, you have a deeper, you come away with a deeper understanding of sort of the struggles that that men go through as well. And, and, and if, whether it's that whole, like we're talking about in real life with that whole like sort of playboy thing, like maybe that's why Harry Dean Stanton was never married either, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That he, he just understood that. This to me is almost like what happens if a character like that does get married, <laughs> yes. right? Uh, what happens if a human being like that does? And, and a lot of people, you know, I admire them when they say, I don't want to have children or I don't want to settle down or whatever. And they just accept that you know, versus the people who force the issue and go, oh, society wants me to do this. And then they, they go ahead and do it and they're really not suited or capable. Right? Yeah. And, and, and you come away with, I think with a lot more empathy of, for someone who, for just the, the actual capabilities of a human being that some people just aren't, aren't cut out to handle these things. And, and, um, you look at it from the outsider's point of view and you go, oh my God, this was a really young woman. Right. Yeah. And yeah, she's got to be. Older man. She's got to be like thirty years younger than her husband in this film. But I think also, yeah. if you've come from a rough, hard scrabble environment, you might find yourself, you know, uh, marrying someone who will take you away from all this. You know, no matter who how old they are. The film ends with mother and son reunited in the hotel that uh, the dad's staying at, and we see them embrace. We see a, a shot of Travis in a parking lot uh, looking at the reuniting of mother and son, which is really the only salvageable thing here. And then he drives off into the night and we see him driving down the highway with Houston disappearing in the background, a very, very beautiful ending, a very yeah, beautiful last the shot side of his, just the side of his face lit up by the, yeah. by the lights. Yeah. And, um, and, and we can see, and I believe the there's that, like I was thinking about, yeah, you can see that his face is wet 
with the tears, but he also is kind of smiling to himself, like, okay, I, I've, I've succeeded. I've done what I, I've done the best I could do. And, and there's two other details. I thought was kind of funny. I thought one was, like I said, I, I wonder about the intentional billboards <laughs> and they're driving away. And there's like sort of this, I think it's like a bank ad or something. It's like together we can do this. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> you know, together we can build this and <laughs> we can make it right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's true that he's kind of gone through this, uh, like I said, reconciliation of sorts as much as it can be. But it's also, I read that, uh, you know, uh, Vin Vendor saw it as like sort of the end of that chapter of his filmography. Mm-hmm. And, and Travis was himself driving away from it, going, okay, that was my road movie chapter. I'm driving away from this now. Yes. Uh, the, a lot of the men in the films that uh, Vendor's made, especially his road trilogy of German films, the guys were all like mm. this. And so, yeah, yeah, he he put all of them in the rear view mirror. I think that Paris, Texas is probably one of Vendor's best films. Uh, my favorite of Vim Vendor's movies, though, is The American Friend. I would recommend that you see that. Yes, that's definitely on my, on my uh, list of, of movies to watch in the near future. I, I, I've still got a few uh, Harry Deans to revisit. I've, I've got uh, I've got uh, Kelly's Heroes in the queue. Uh, I don't think I've seen that since I was really young. Um, where he's part of another great ensemble cast, like like with Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid. Yeah. I want to mention one more thing about Paris, Texas. The music score was by Rye Cooter. It's a very effective uh, slide guitar, minimalist score. On In a recent interview on BBC Radio 4, he said that um, he was really inspired by the ambiance of the movie and the feeling of the desert that Vendors captured and the way that Vendors would use the actual sound of the desert in the movie to like let the microphones collect the tones and Cooter discovered that the sound of the wind is in the key of E flat. So, yeah. <laughs> so he tuned everything to E flat for the movie. Yeah, incredible detail. But the other the other part too of music is the is that Cancion Mesteca, the theme, mm-hmm. uh, which Harry Dean Stanton goes on to. If you look him up anywhere, you'll see him. He sings it on David Letterman. He sings it in interviews more recently. Um, it's on. He sings it in the partly fiction documentary about him. Um, and it's on the soundtrack album to that because so much of that uh, a movie, that documentary features him singing. Um, and you never hear the words of, of it, um, but the translation to it, which Harry Dean often recites before he sings the song in person, um, is is so poignant. And it's so interesting that the music, the music is such a fitting theme for the movie and it appears all the way throughout. It, it's, it's playing in the bar when he walks in there's a version of the Cancion Mistega is played. The tune is playing, you know, in that bar when he first wanders out of the desert, mm-hmm. um, just on a radio and then different versions of it are either, um, you know, being played in a, on a radio in the background, or it's just, you know, it's in the, it's, it's being played over the movie as well. And that's the other, the other part that sets the thing, but he always introduces it as the theme from Paris, Texas. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then, like I said, he recites the lyrics, which so accurately describe the just the sentimentality and the and the 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 overall longing of trying to go back to what never could be again. Yeah, yeah. It's a theme song in Paris, Texas. 
lejos estoy del suelo donde he nacido. Intensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento. Al verme tan solo y triste cual al viento. Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir de sentimiento. Let's segue over to Lucky, which was a movie that I hadn't seen that you recommended that that we talk about. Uh, and it's so funny how we, we've come at these two movies from different directions, because I really appreciated Lucky because of its uh, relationship to Paris, Texas, whereas you saw Lucky first. And I want to hear about your relationship with this movie. Yeah, it was the movie I, I got in touch with you about, because I know you often uh, talk about films that are overlooked. And, it's, and Lucky is a movie that... It really struck me when I first saw it. Uh, it was one of those movies where I got to the end and kind of just breathed a wow. And to me, that's, I'm like, okay, this must be a movie I, I truly loved uh, because it always kind of leaves me like, wow, that was interesting. But um, I thought, uh, listening to your podcast, I thought, well, you know, Jesse, here's an overlooked movie. I think that, I think that because it is, um, it is this sort of short and sweet little film um, overall. It, it um it gets overlooked uh even though it was you know it had great reviews when it came out my sister-in-law was kind enough to give me this book this last christmas um that i'm really enjoying called the film that changed my life uh by robert k elder and it's 30 directors on their epiphanies in the dark is the subtitle and um in his introduction he he says john landis says it best it's extremely important to know that how you appreciate a movie has everything to do with your life experience at the moment when you see it how you see it, and where you see it. Um, and for myself, I saw this movie. Um, I picked it out of a list of, at the time, I had a you know a, a cable streaming service, or whatever that kind of sorted things according to, you know, like Rotten Tomatoes. And I was like, okay, I just want something that's you know, I'm just watching movies that are get the highest ratings. And up pops this Lucky, and I'm like, oh, I like Harry Dean Stanton. I've always enjoyed him in movies. I'm gonna, I have, I can't believe I haven't seen this. I'm gonna check this out. And it was a movie that I saw um, at about 38, 39 years old, and I was, I was actually newly sober. Um, I was kind of never thought I'd ever have to completely sober up, but I had gone through some, through some anxiety and, and depression issues, um, sort of acute issues uh, shortly before that, and had you know, doctors tell me, hey, you're going to have to stop smoking weed and things like this. And I was... Um, initially very not okay with that idea and ended up having to make some serious life changes in order to, to just to sort of get my mental health back and, and to make sure that I didn't lose, um, lose the world around me. Um, which I'm, I'm very grateful I didn't. And then this movie comes along that as we'll talk about, I think the theme, the overall theme to me is ex at least, you know, in my relationship to it is acceptance. Um, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm only, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just in my early 40s now, so I can't, I couldn't necessarily identify with this 90-year-old man in this movie who's coming to terms with the end of his life. Um, but I really identified with with the with the theme of of acceptance, and I also really, um, I think, just it marked a change. I always cite it as as a sort of a change in how I see movies now. Um, as as a middle-aged man, I, I 
the kind of movies that I really enjoy. And this one is, I always say, I, I want something wholesome and sweet, but not treacle, right? I'm not looking for, you know, obvious sentimentality or anything like that. But this movie just is one of those ones that, you know, where Paris, Texas definitely definitely speaks to the human condition and speaks to you as a, as a dad and a dude. Um, it packs this emotional wallet that leaves you feeling like, holy hell, what did, you know, it's a real punch in the stomach. Um, Lucky is a film that leaves you feeling quite good about the world. You have any kids, Lucky? None that I'm totally sure on. <laughs> you know, most people don't get to where you are. They never get to the moment that you're in right now, where you have the ability to witness what you're going through and clearly examine it. Lucky was directed by another character actor, John Carroll Lynch. Uh, you know this guy's face. He was Francis McDormand's husband in Fargo. And he was Arthur Lee Allen, the prime suspect in David Fincher's Zodiac. So he directed this movie, which I would describe as a hangout film. I think that it's, uh, you can't quite compare it to Paris, Texas in terms of the stakes. Uh, this is a very meditative, uh, sweet comedy drama about a very, very old man. Uh, you could think of him as travis in some ways <laughs> like he seems to be a continuation of the travis character except uh as a 90 year old and was played by the 90 year old harry dean stanton john carroll lynch yeah. was asked about his experience working with harry dean stanton on this movie he said it was delightful challenging frustrating angering as well as breathtaking and surprising he focused so clearly on the moment that he only responded to notes you had on that individual moment of how to play something. You had to say it in a way that was clearly about that moment and not about what you needed as a director. Structure was of no interest to him. Yeah. I mean, he, this, this movie is Harry Dean Stanton. Um, it's, I know you love the term love letter, <laughs> but, but it is right. And you, like you said, it's, it's feels like a movie made by friends and it was, um, you know, his, his very uh, dear friend and, and personal assistant in the later years of his life, um, Logan Sparks, was the co-writer of the movie, and and a lot of the dialogue, both for Harry Dean Stanton and other characters, is, is made up of things that Harry Dean Stanton would say. Um, you can tell that it's this kind of, you know, uh, deeply personal movie, and it's the kind of thing that not a lot of actors get. But if there's an actor that deserves it, right, to have a movie that's sort of an epitaph to their life and career and a movie, you know, and a role written for them and about them um, to try and share with the world, you know, what's beautiful about, about him and about his, his philosophy and his approach to life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love that, you know, essentially the plot of the movie is that, you know, this, this 90 year old man is, is living in a town where he's uh, it's a small town and he's accepted by, his his peers and he has no you know everybody knows him and likes him and and accepts him for who he is and his his little quirks but he's he there's no major problems right the inciting incident of the whole film really is that he, he suddenly falls down with no explanation and it's it's this reminder that he's old he's he may very well be on his last legs here and 
but he's clear-headed and um, and aware of it. And um, and so it's just the movie. The, really, the arc is just him kind of going through the stages of accepting his fate, of accepting that hey, you're not going to live forever, and um, how are you going to how are you going to deal with that? And and then again, I think you can identify with it whether you're young or old, but because because you are just watching the internal struggle of a person, but it's presented in this through all these little uh, beautiful little scenes, um, all these amazing actors that we'll that we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, you know, throughout the film, and and it's presented in a really loving way, you know. One of the key uh, elements of the character Lucky, he's a chain smoker. He is a foul-mouthed guy. He is a hard drinker. He has a very, very uh, basic routine of, uh, you know, going to the store, going to the bar, watching daytime game shows, doing his crossword. Every day is pretty much the same as yesterday. He's an atheist. And one of the things that I guess we all have to deal with when we're coming to the end of our lives is what lies beyond when you're an atheist, I guess you know that there's nothing beyond this. Uh, there's, you know, you're mm-hmm. you're alive and then you're not alive anymore. And throughout the film, um, the concept of the void and nothing keeps coming up. Like whenever he goes to the local diner that he always goes to every day, the guy who owns the place says, you're nothing to him. And uh, th- there are that. a couple of scenes at the bar where, you know, nothingness keeps coming up as a topic, <laughs> you know. I absolutely love it. I, you know, I love that that sets it up right there um, where you're kind of, I think, you know, the average person or just you're first seeing this and you like, did he, what did he just say? He walks in and he, but he says it in such an interesting tone where he's just like, you're nothing. And I, I wanted to greet you on the podcast that way today. But, um, you know, he says, you're nothing. And, and, uh, and, and his friend Joe, you know, fires back at him. You're nothing. And he goes, thank you. You know? Yeah. And because it's like this daily affirmation and, and then you and then you look at uh, the more you learn about Harry Dean Sand, the more you see him in interviews. You know, he talked about this concept, and and I remember when um, after Jim Carrey filmed Andy Kaufman, and then he was doing this in interviews too, right? Where right. It almost annoyed viewers and interviewers, and people were like, "Oh, he's gone off the deep end." When people were like, "Oh, so what do you think about this?" or "How did you feel doing this?" and he's like, "But there is no you and me. We're all just one. We're all just part of it." And he's sort of introducing this 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 concept that he loves to meditate and dwell on uh, to the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and people are annoyed by that. And um, I think, but, but it's, it's for me, it's this wonderful thing. And it's, um, it isn't just this, this love letter to this beautiful actor. It's a, it's a very kind of spiritual movie in the sense. And I'm not, I'm also an atheist. I'm not someone who had an easy time accepting uh, spirituality when I was told that that's what I had to do. Um, but to me, spirituality is just what it's presented here, which is is just an acceptance of who you are, being mindful of how you're feeling, um, you know, just having that mind-body connection and, and nothing more than that. Nothing more, um, it doesn't need to be any deeper than that. And I see this movie almost as a kind of a guided meditation. Um, it is, although it's dealing with these profound topics, it's it's profoundly accessible and easy viewing. And it's comfortable, and you just—it's almost like um, all these people have have composed all these bits of Harry into this into this beautiful um, 
script and movie, but it's him holding your hand and saying, like, come on, let's go through this together in a way. Well, there's one scene that um, features a memorable reunion between Tom Skerritt and Harry Dean Stanton, Dallas and Brett, Mm. the cast of Alien Mm. together again. Tom Skerritt is 88 now. Uh, He was in the Air Force, but after World War II. But they have a scene together in the diner where uh, Tom Skerritt tells him about some of the action that he saw in Okinawa. Well, it's 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 uh, definitely like a one of the more serious and sort of um, profound parts in the movie. But it's also um, you can see uh, Harry Dean Stanton reacting and hanging on every word of this story uh, from this former Marine character, and and you can see that he's like. You know, it's someone he automatically has respect and, and, you know, as opposed to the people in his life that he, he kind of lets in as close or as far as he wants to be, um, he wants to sidle up at the counter to this character mm-hmm. and he wants to hear his story and you can see him sort of hanging on every word. And then you kind of see this, this, um, this beautiful story and it's, 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 well, it's, I don't know if it's beautiful, but he's, he's telling it in like, uh, he's telling the story of, of these Marines landing in the Philippines and of all the, the people being afraid of what the, the Japanese have told them about what the Americans are going to do and how, how it's better to just die. And so people are, you know, flinging their children's off, off <laughs> flinging their children off of cliffs and, and following them and, um, for fear of the American invaders. And, and Tom Scarrett's telling how they came across this girl and he, and he couldn't believe the brilliance of her smile. She's standing there smiling. And he says, you know, to his, he says to his, uh, his, his friend, oh, well, look, here's someone who's actually glad to see us. And the guy says, no, she's, she's a Buddhist and she's, she thinks she's going to die and she's smiling at her fate. And so he, he, um, he's recounting this in a way that he's saying, like, you know, God, like the, they don't give a medal for that kind of bravery and I wish I had that in me, right? And this is the point where it's, it's such a... Um, uh, a crucial point for Harry Dean Stanton's character because he realizes he's like, okay, this is what I, this is how I should go out too, right? This is how I need to. If this little girl in the middle of this hell could accept her fate, um, that's what I need to do now at this point in my life. Is I need to, and he takes the story on very personally too. And there's that other wonderful scene where Harry Dean Stanton goes to the doctor after he has a, a fall. He yeah. goes to visit uh, Dr. Ehrlich from St. Elsewhere, played by Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> yeah, and, and brilliant details there, which is someone who was a real friend and drinking buddy of his in life. Um, I, I love that they've, what they did and um, where they, they took this, this place where they used to drink together and a lot of other uh, stars, this West Hollywood bar, Dantana's, and they actually kind of modeled the bar in the film after that. Yeah. Um, but they took the, I guess the uh, other neat detail that they that they put in, sort of as an in joke among their friends, was that this Christian Needler was the name of the major D of that bar, and oh. so they gave that they gave that name to the doctor uh, to to Ed Bagley Jr.'s character, um, who's another character that when you you know he walks in and right away even like my wife goes oh I love him and I'm like yeah I know right like, he's just one of those people that you're like I just love this guy, um, and I think you know, like Harry Dean Stanton, right? It's because the personality exudes from whatever character they're playing. Mm-hmm. This sort of, this sort of their intelligence, their charm, um, their wit, it, it comes across wherever they are and they're instantly likable to us. We, it, you know, that's to me is just, it's the power of cinema of someone giving the right words to the right person 
and then that person's personality just shining through whatever character. And, and, and it's such a great scene where he's basically just telling them like, look, I can't figure out what's wrong with you. The best I can tell you is you're getting old. Um, but you have this unique, you have this unique, um, opportunity, which is that you're what a lot of people don't get, right? Like he says, they either get hit by a bus or they die of leukemia or something happens to them, but you're going to go through this, uh, with the ability to clearly examine it and, 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 and deal with it. And that's what he goes on to do. Right. And there's all the, there's the brilliant kind of, um, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's uh, foreshadowing is the right word, but there's, you know, the crossword clue realism. Mm-hmm. Where he learns that realism is a thing, and then he takes that into the bar that night. Like, what are we going to chat about? Wow, oh, realism is a thing. Um, and I love when he's on the phone dealing with the crossword clue. Like I said, Harry Dean Stanton in interviews talks about, you know, the awesome casual relationship he has, where when he's having these thoughts about life and spirituality and philosophy and whatever, he calls up, he could call up people like in his life, like Marlon Brando and and Jack Nicholson, and these were the people who were his actual close friends in real life. Um, you know, he's actually friends with Ed Begley Jr. and uh, David Lynch. Um, you know, these are people that really appreciated him for who he was, and these are the people that he was really close to in his life. And, and you could imagine him just picking up a phone with no formalities and being like, hold on, just listen while I read this definition from the dictionary, and you tell me what you think. And like, like, he's going to bounce this crossword clue off of his old buddy and then he's just like all right thanks man hangs up uh it's it's such a neat detail um and i and when i'm watching it now when i rewatch it i like to imagine that that's just jack nicholson on the other end of the line going ah yeah well you know that's that's my buddy no no problem i always got five minutes for him you know the other funny thing about Lucky is that uh, this is probably one of the largest roles that David Lynch has ever had as an actor outside of his own work. Yeah, outside of things like uh, like Twin Peaks, and like I, I love watching him. Right, he's so fascinating, and he's and he stands right out in this. And he he's the he's the subplot. Like his story is the subplot um, that kind of parallels Lucky. Um, it's one of the Aside from the music, I think it's one of the, the other key things that ties this movie together is this awesome story of of, of his character's um, pet tortoise, President Roosevelt, running away. Um, how does a tortoise run away, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he's he's off on some business that he has to do, and and it's it's so beautiful. Um, I love seeing David Lynch on screen. Uh, his his is a personality that I'm I'm really drawn to as well. I love and I and I love that he's this person who's really you know a big proponent of transcendental meditation and 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 a, and a sort of a more secular spirituality right um he's also someone who shares that with the world and uh and i like that you know harry dean stanton did that in interviews and i like that harry dean stanton's able to do it with this movie like share that kind of a a simple accessible uh spirituality yeah, I mean, you know, that that is something that I relate to cuz I wouldn't call myself an atheist, but I would say that I'm an agnostic. I don't believe mm-hmm. in like organized religion. I actually don't know anything about what happens when we die. I I can't tell you for certain that there is no god. I don't think the god that mm-hmm. we all pray to uh or the various gods that we all pray to are the genuine article. I have no idea. Um but the thing is, we all uh, there's still such a thing as spirituality and good and evil, and you know, being a good person. 
And uh, mm-hmm. there's something uh, to be said for we don't get very many movies that are basically secular humanist perspectives where there's a spirituality no. that is not tied to organized religion. Yeah, and it doesn't, and again, it's not trying to be preachy about anything. It's not militant or disrespectful in any way. And I think this is, again, like I said, this is why I feel so personally drawn to this movie is it reflects these kind of changes that I've gone through and this sort of maturing that I've done right from, you know, when you're in your 20s watching Christopher Hitchens or something videos and then you kind of, you kind of grow out of all that stuff, right? And, and you kind of, and you kind of realize, you start to just accept the people for who they are and, and not feel like you have to impose your, your values on the world around you. And as simplistic as it might be and easy to criticize as it might be, I do, I really appreciate this, this aspect of Harry Dean Stanton and, and, and the movies, um, the roles that he's given us. I want to read the statement that David Lynch released uh, after Harry Dean Stanton passed away in 2017. He wrote, The great Harry Dean Stanton has left us. There went a great one. There's nobody like Harry Dean. Everyone loved him, and with good reason. He was a great actor, actually beyond great, and a great human being. So great to be around him. You are really going to be missed, Harry Dean. Loads of love to you, wherever you are now. Nobody, I think, is more eloquent than, than David Lynch talking about Harry Dean Stanton like that. Um, he, there's somebody who's so direct with what he, what he means, uh, even though he made all these movies that leave you wondering what exactly he means. Um, but he was, he is, he's so tapped in, right, uh, to the human condition and to, to what's great about someone like Harry Dean Stanton and, you know, the perfect director for him to work with. Um, you could see why they were friends. Uh, you could see why he, like, I just, yeah, it's, it's so good to hear his appreciation of him, right? Because it's so honest and heartfelt. Well, he was an actor who had 200 credits. Mm. We saw a lot of him throughout our lives, you, your life and my life. And uh, that's the thing that I most appreciate about Lucky is that it feels like a bunch of people who loved and respected Harry Dean Stanton wanted to give not only him a real farewell performance, but to give us all a chance to take one last look at him. Yeah, and 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 everything that was great about him, like I said, from showing us from the intimate phone conversations uh, to you know, being to, to vulnerability, you know, there's that great scene where he, where he um, smokes the joint with the server from the bar, uh, from the cafe mm-hmm. and, and, and says, can I tell you a secret? I'm actually afraid, you know, and you see that the, you know, that now the wave is about to crest where he's sort of gone through the anger. He's admitted his vulnerability and fear. Um, and then you see him like, you know, he, when he sings at that party, uh, that beautiful scene. Um, oh Yeah. Right. Right. Things like, volver, yeah, volver, which means to return. Yes. Yeah. So beautiful. And, and everyone there is kind of struck by it. And, and you, you almost feel like, again, like you're, you're watching a documentary, like you're in the, you're the eye in the corner of this, of this party where, where everybody's, they're having a fiesta and they're, they're having like, you know, and he's, it shows also his fascination with that, right? He was a long time, uh, a longtime lover of mariachi music and Spanish music, spoke Spanish, you know, taught himself to speak Spanish and wanted to sing all those songs in Spanish. Um, and he's, and, and as much as he loves to communicate with the world through acting, he wants to share, uh, his personality and his loves of music too. And, um, so, you know, they didn't, I don't think they, 
they definitely didn't miss a trick in this movie. There was, you know, they, they put it all in there and all those aspects of his, of his, of his personality, the funny bits and the, the stuff that you could kind of chuckle along with but all the really tender moments. And the, um, like I said, the beautiful, his love of music, his love of people, mm-hmm. um, and culture and so on. It just, it's all there. Justin, I want to thank you uh, for recommending that I watch Lucky because that was the kind of movie that I may not have gotten around to, but you you pushed me to watch it, and and in so doing, you sort of set off a chain reaction in my head where I just thought about how important Harry Dean Stanton is to me as a screen presence, and how many great movies that he made that enriched my life, and what a, an amazing human being he was, and and it was great to see Paris, Texas again at a different point in my life, which. Uh, harkens back to that comment from Landis you made earlier that, you know, uh, movies really do depend on where you are when you see them. Huge. It's <laughs> like, like I said, I just happened on these, on these movies and that's how I see myself in my life. Uh, just, just a lucky fella over here. Um, and uh, I know, I think it was a, a Jeff Garland standup performance where he said, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't call it lucky, call it grateful. And so I try to remember that and try to replace it and say, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm very grateful, but um, but I am, I, 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 I feel a, an immense amount of gratitude for, for movies in general, for what they bring. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you've talked to on this podcast. I love when you talked to Domenico about, uh, movie mindset and, yeah. and all that, but, but, uh, you know, that is kind of, um, it is one of those, those outlets that I think help us, you know, like our own dreams, help us make sense of, of our feelings and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, seeing these uh, two movies so close together, it was it was uh, really poignant for me. Like, oh, yep, this is the phase of life you're in, and and here's here's how to accept it. Here's what to av- Paris, Texas. I think kind of gives you uh, here's here's what to avoid. Yes, <laughs> and and uh, and Lucky gives you gives you the like I said, realism. Like, see see things as they really exist, and then and then deal with it accordingly. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, you have such a great podcast, and it, it made me think I was I'm going to be on this and. And it made me think about, um, you know, like when I was a kid and I'd, I'd get over to my granny's on a Friday night and get to watch late night TV. And I'd watch things like David Letterman and go in my, my little childhood fantasy as a young teen would be like, maybe someday they'll just realize how brilliant I am and they'll call me up to be on one of these shows, right? I, I don't know why I want to be on there, but man, I want to go talk to somebody like David Letterman. How cool would that be? And then, uh, um, but you know what? I'll tell you that uh, uh, not to get... Uh, uh, too gushy or flatter here, but it's really cool for me to um, to be uh, someone who's who's you know last few years something else that's really gotten me uh, through a lot has has been um, podcasts like uh, like Chapo and uh, the Trailbillies and and um, coming across your podcast through through Chapo uh, it's so cool now I'm like I f- I feel like I'm sitting in the virtual seat where Will Menneker and Matt Christman and uh, Dan Beckner and all these other people that I love to hear what they think you know. Um, and then uh, I, I feel like I'm uh, somehow by proxy getting to sit there. So it's 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 really cool and a real honor to, to talk with you about movies. Thank you so much, Justin. But you talked your way successfully onto the show. You you gave me a great pitch, and I was very very happy to uh, talk about this stuff with you. And uh, it was wonderful having you on the show. I, what I want to say about your podcast that I really really enjoy. The other thing is that um, you've 
I, I tend to go on these on these like I said rabbit holes. Like I see a Harry Dean Stanton movie, I'm like, what else was he? And oh, that'll be cool. I'll check this out, and it leads you on these wonderful um, little journeys and, and discoveries. Um, and I tend to do that just with directors because, like, I think you know, the, even though there's so much other work that goes into a movie, like directors obviously create the the mood and the the thing, the feel that that I connect with so much about movies that we all do. And um, so, like, you send me on these, <laughs> these, and I love, you know, like, I listen to, like I said, something like your Will Manneker episode, and I'm like, oh, you know, it's just about time. I haven't been on a Paul Schrader kick for a year or two, and, and, and off I go into a few more that you talked about. Like, I hadn't seen, you know, Autofocus or Hardcore, right? And yeah. There's, you know, a few movies that I'm like, oh, yeah, I still got to check these off the list, right? And um, and it's it's brilliant, and you brought, oh, you know, things like Cutter's Way, uh, the Bill Forsyth movies. Oh, wow. I've shared those with other people. Um, there's still people I want to share the housekeeping movie with, but like, I would have, I probably never would have gotten around a local hero if you didn't remind me of it. And you know, what a gem of a movie, you know, just awesome experiences. To my listeners, you can watch an authorized stream of Lucky for free with limited ad breaks right now on YouTube. If you watch it on Google Chrome, you can get an ad blocker plugin so you can skip the ads. But you didn't hear it from me. <laughs> Justin, where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, there's a there's a dark, dark hole of Twitter where people with no followers live. Um, it's <laughs> I'm at Bougie Rougie, uh is my name. Um, like I said, I I, uh, I don't post a lot or interact a lot, but I do enjoy a certain corner. I do enjoy reading the posts from uh, from a certain corner of Twitter where where you reside and and others. So. If I even just get a follow, like I said, from Matt Chrisman and Dan Beckner, I'll be thrilled out of this. Well, I'll, I'll certainly furnish my listeners with the link to your Twitter. And hopefully you can enjoy the junk filter bump that other guests have had. Yeah, well, I think I feel like it's high time. Uh, my wife is telling me I should get around to a movie podcast of my own and uh, or some kind of a podcast of my own. And I, uh, I uh, hope someday to do that. So if, if anyone's listening who wants to... Uh, be a co-conspirator in such an endeavor feel free to feel free to hit me up well justin i volunteer as tribute if you do a podcast please have me on your show (laughs) oh definitely without a doubt justin schneider thank you so much for joining me thanks so much for having me on jesse what a pleasure we'll have another episode of junk filter in the next few days coming soon to the podcast the music writer stephen hyden will be my guest we're going to be discussing martin scorsese's the color of money The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you so much for listening.